The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Who rules over you? Simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH on and your host. Today is our Thursday show, so I'm delighted to welcome my dear friend Dr. Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And today's show is the real story of the history of central banking and its enslavement of mankind. Part five. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Well, we've looked at the interesting examples that Stephen Mitford Goodson gives us of how the wars of the last few centuries have been overwhelmingly bankers' wars. And as Madame Rothschild said, if my sons didn't want war, we wouldn't have any. Um, and as the Rothschilds boasted, it matters not which puppet sits on the throne of, the, of England on whom the uh, sun never sets. Whoever controls the money supply controls the country, and I control England's money supply. So the Rothschilds have played duplicitous roles in many things, such as in the First World War when Lord Nathan Rothschild sat on the war cabinet and authorized massive loans in the tunes of hundreds of billions from his bank, which the taxpayer in Britain has still been paying off in recent years, the loans for the First World War. and um, But that money then went to his companies that were making the munitions, the tanks, the Vickers machine guns, the artillery pieces, the mustard gas, uh, which was used to slaughter hundreds of thousands of the enemy in Flanders fields and uh, getting profits not only from the interest on the loans, but also the banks and on the companies that were making the munitions. And his relatives were running the banks in Italy, France, Germany, Austria, United States, in every country in Europe except Russia. The Russian Empire had a state bank which did not use interest and which did not get into debt to create money supply for its citizens. And that's one reason why the First World War was initiated, was to destroy the great Christian empire of Russia. And we saw how Stephen Goodson uh, documented the phenomenal achievements of the Russian state bank and the very high standard of living and um, increasing industrial productivity, massive increase in uh, everything from canals to railways and uh, 
you could see that Russia was a growing, strong economy, and it was destroyed and parasited off by the Bolsheviks with the goal of advancing the globalist agenda. Well, here we get some other interesting things that during the Second World War, the war was coincidentally directed against countries that didn't have a Rothschild-controlled usury bank, but had state banks that were not using interest and were not uh, loading up massive amounts of debt against the taxpayers. And that was Italy, Japan, and Germany. Their banks were not run by the Rothschilds. And what a coincidence that wars are time and again, especially in 20th century, directed against countries that don't have a Rothschild-controlled bank. Well, we've got another example of that in the Bank of Libya. From 1551 to 1911, Libya was ruled by the Ottoman Turkish Empire. From 1911 to 1943, it was ruled by Italy. From 1943 to 1951, ruled by Britain and France. Well, they had a typical state bank at um, Libya, but uh, this changed after a coup d'etat in 1969, and uh, Muhammad al-Qaddafi took control of the economic activities of the country, including that of the central bank. And uh, there were some reforms Foreign bankers were not allowed to operate. Financing of government infrastructure was not to attract any interest. And Libya had no national debt and no foreign debt. So its foreign exchange reserves exceeded $54 billion, which if you compare to reserves of developed countries like the United Kingdom and Canada, which were about $50 billion and $40 billion respectively in the same time period, not at 2010. So... In fact, Libya was doing pretty well to have the same amount of foreign exchange reserves as the United Kingdom and Canada, and they were doing that without a bank that charged interest at usury prices to enrich the Rothschild family. GDP growth in Libya from the year 2000-2010 was 4.32% per annum. Inflation was virtually nil, which was 0.27%. Uh, now, Colonel Gaddafi was described in the media as a blood-sucking monster and a terrible dictator and a sponsor of terrorism. And uh, one wonders if that had anything to do with the fact that his bank was not controlled by the Rothschilds. So here's some facts that Stephen Mitford Goodson brings out that under Gaddafi's state-controlled bank, which was not a globalist-controlled bank, which had no interest, free education was provided to all citizens of Libya. Students were actually paid a salary. They were paid this average salary for the subject they were studying. Students studying overseas were provided with accommodation, a vehicle, and 2,500 euro per annum. Citizens in Libya received free electricity, free healthcare, free housing. There were no mortgages. Newlywed couples received a gift of effectively $50,000 from the government. Automobiles were sold to the citizens at factory cost prices free of any interest. Private loans were provided free of interest. Bread was 15 cents per loaf. Petrol was 12 cents per litre. Portions of the profits from the sale of oil were paid directly into the bank accounts of citizens. Farmers received free land, free seed and free animals. There was full employment and anyone who is temporarily unemployed was paid full salary as if he was employed. The wealth of Libya was distributed equally amongst its 5.79 million inhabitants, especially from the oil sales. 
There was no such thing as homeless vagrants, no beggars. Life expectancy was 75 years, which is the highest in Africa, 10% above the world's average. And uh, Libya, as far as human rights goes, stood at 61 in National Incarceration Index. And uh, they achieved a tremendous um, financial coup when the Namibian sandstone fossil aquifer system was turned into a great man-made river which supplied six and a half million cubic meters of fresh daily water to the cities of Tripoli and Benghazi. They found this extracted water from under the desert was 10 times cheaper than desalinated water where they take seawater and get rid of the salt. Total cost of project for this man-made river was $25 billion financed without a single foreign loan and without any interest. Now, Libya had a central bank run on genuine state lines, exhibiting classic symptoms of full employment, zero inflation, and modern workers' day paradise. So Stephen Goodson points out that NATO intervened on the pretext of human rights abuses, which of course you find all over the world and even in uh, member countries of NATO and the EU and the UN. But they wondered if this had anything to do with the fact that Libya abandoned the petrodollar as its means of exchange because in November 2000, Saddam Hussein of Iraq decreed all oil payments in future be made in euros. He didn't want to deal in the currency of the enemy. And Gaddafi followed this example of Saddam Hussein, who also had a bank not controlled by the Rothschilds and without using interest. And so they moved off the petrodollar and they started to buy and sell oil uh, with, um, in the case of Libya, gold dinars. They created a gold dinar. And so basically they were being paid in gold for their oil. And the oil was a very high standard. Well, interesting that um, at this point, as they went off the petrodollar and they were dealing with gold-based currencies, suddenly NATO had to bomb them and Libya was turned into a hellhole where a massive series of um, floods of immigrants poured from Libya into at first Italy and then throughout Europe. The destabilizing of the whole of North Africa began with the so-called Arab Spring of 2011, sponsored by um, Barack Hussein Obama's State Department under Hillary Clinton. And we know how disastrous that was, overthrowing stable governments like that of Egypt and uh, Libya to create tidal waves of um, immigrants pouring into Europe to create a demographic time bomb down the road. But... Um, all of this was probably um, triggered uh, by the Libyans going off the, off the petrodollar standard for selling and buying of oil and going on to the gold dinar. And uh, so we've got some interesting quotes here. One quote is from Sir Josiah Stamp, former director of the Bank of England. Banking was conceived in evil and born in sin. The bankers own the earth. Take it away from them, but leave them the power to create deposits, and with a flick of the pen, they'll create enough deposits to buy the earth back again. Her, however, take it away from them, and all the great fortunes like mine will disappear, and they ought to disappear. For this would be a happy and better world to live in. 
But if you wish to remain slaves of the bankers and to pay the cost of your own slavery, let them continue to create deposits. And that's from Josiah Stamp, former director of the Bank of England. Well, there's another great quote here, and that's from Reginald McKenna, former Chancellor of the Exchequer. He said, I'm afraid the ordinary citizen will, will not like to be told that banks can and do create and destroy money. The amount of money in existence varies only with the actions of the banks increasing and decreasing deposits and and they who control the credit of a nation direct the policy of governments and hold in the whole of their hands the destiny of the people. So that's from Reginald McKenna, former Chancellor of the Exchequer. Banks create and destroy currency and direct the policy of governments and control the destinies of people. So Stephen Goodson points out how do a bank crises take place. Bank crises can take three forms. Number one, when an individual bank collapses because of lack of confidence in the subsequent withdrawal of funds by its depositors. Secondly, a bank can have a run when a number of banks fail simultaneously. And number three, the entire system can implode. Well, in the 18th century, that's the 1900s, banking crises were confined to only those countries which had central banks and practiced usury. England, Netherlands, and Sweden so, in 1710, the Sword Blade Bank, in competition with the Bank of England, took a portion of national debt in exchange for Sword Blade shares. The following year, the South Sea Company did a similar deal. In 1720, they took over the remaining government debt in exchange for overvalued shares. The South Sea Company was nothing but a shell. They had no trading assets. Well, in 2010, the Sword Blade Bank went into liquidation by the end of the year, the shares of the South Sea Company had lost 90% of their peak value, which used to be a thousand pounds per share. In 1763, after the Seven Years' War, bills issued by the bank uh, in the Netherlands, Leander Peter de Neuville, could not be redeemed and precipitated to run on the banks in Netherlands, Germany, and Sweden. In 1772, the London banking house of Neil, James, Fordyce, and Down which had indulged in speculation on a massive scale by shorting the East India Company stock, crashed after it could not recover its losses by raiding customers' deposits. 22 significant banks and almost all private banks in Scotland were forced into liquidation. This contagion spread to Amsterdam. Many banks they experienced liquidity crisis, including Clifford and & Sons, and went bankrupt. However, all banking crises would be precipitated as a result of the central banking model, which permitted private banks to create money as an interest-bearing loan and then destroyed it once it had been repaid. Thus, the first two panics in the United States in 1792 and 1796 and 97 were induced by the first bank of the United States when it purposefully withheld credit to create a slump. A similar financial disaster and subsequent discussion Depression were planned and executed by Rothschild owned Second Bank of the United States in 1819, while Britain was also afflicted by artificially created panics in 1825 and 1847. In the panic of 1825, 66 banks were forced to close their doors. There was another banking panic in the United States in 1857 as a result of a fabricated shortage of gold and the failure of the Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company. The United States was forced onto the gold standard January 1873, a pattern of more frequent, intensified banking panics uh, developed. 
less than eight months later of that same year, 1873, the United States was premeditatedly plunged into recession, which lasted for four years. The other banking panics of 1884, 1890, 1891, 1893, 1897, 1903, 1907, all of these were deliberately orchestrated to drive the American people into a state of confusion and despair. After 40 years of planned chaos, of boom and bust, and targeted media campaigns of disinformation, the U.S. population was meekly capitulating to the bankers' conspirators' dream of a United States central bank, which was realized 23rd December 1913. Well, after the Great Depression had been contrived by the United States Federal Reserve Bank, a relative period of stability supervened until the 1990s when ever-increasing number of countries suffered economic crises and financial difficulties, particularly Finland, Sweden, Venezuela, Indonesia, South Korea, Thailand, Russia, Argentina, Ecuador, and Uruguay. Well, the seeds of the current banking crisis of 2007 on were sown by the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which prohibited bank holding companies from owning financial institutions and separate banks from investment houses. This was abrogated November 12, 1999. At the time of the promulgation of the original Act, Senator Carter Glass, former U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, one of the authors remarked, with a man, with a gun, a man can rob a bank. With a bank, a man can rob the world. And I don't think many people realize that banks rob us. Just like a person could rob a bank, so the bank's actually robbing the general population. It was deemed towards the end of President Bill Clinton's administration that everyone had the right to own a home. And for this purpose, the Department of Housing and Development initiated a program called National Home Ownership Strategy Partners in the American Dream. To attract as many new homeowners as possible, credit standards and regulations were relaxed, and the government allowed borrowers a tax credit of $8,000. Low interest rates were offered for the first two years, with substantially higher rates later. So it basically encouraged people who couldn't afford to uh, take out a loan to take out loans so they could get houses, and this created a tremendous bubble which burst in 2008, bringing Obama to power. Well, between 1998 and 2006, housing prices rose by 124%, but two years later in 2008, the housing prices dropped by 20%. In contrast to rising prices, the affordability of housing showed a declining trend. And not everyone is a good credit risk and is stable for paying back debts. But government policy and the banks uh, encouraged irresponsible loans and loans to people who were no chance of paying back the loan, and uh, these would fail. And so people invested in these shares were going to end up with a bubble that was going to burst. So credit default swaps intended to hedge or speculate against credit risks increased a hundredfold between 1998 and 2008 to $47 trillion, that's credit risks, loaning money to people who were highly unlikely to pay back. And this had a value of $683 trillion in debts that could not be repaid, issued irresponsibly to people who had no credit rating of paying off debts and so on.
So to fuel the property boom, there were all kinds of innovative financial products developed as collateralized debt obligations. And so they were selling worthless derivatives and mortgages of varying degrees of quantity were bundled up and they were fraudulently sold and rating agencies uh, lied and tripled their value and uh, they sold on to gullible investors who later lost everything. In order to further this culture of greed, the shadow banking sector, which included investment banks and hedge funds, whose total funds are believed to have amounted to in excess of $100 trillion, aggressively marketed these products, notwithstanding the fact that by 2007, 39% of all home loans did not meet the underwriting standards of any issuer, and they were bound to collapse. This was just a bubble. The balloon finally went up when the Lehman Brothers were declared bankrupt September the 15th, 2008, the so-called um, October Surprise, which guarantees that the opposition party will win the next presidential election. A rescue package was hastily assembled. Congress approved a sum of $700 million for a troubled asset relief program, but this was only the tip of the iceberg, and the U.S. Federal Reserve was granted since then $16 trillion worth of assistance to domestic and foreign banks. Now, what this is, is the banks have moved to where they they privatize the profits, but they nationalize the risks. So they don't actually have any risk because if the whole thing fails, the taxpayer picks up the burden. Now, when this happened in 2008, Iceland locked up all the bankers and the politicians in prison and forgave the debts to the people, whereas in America, they basically put in the most Wall Street orientated administration in American history under Obama. And uh, under Obama, the bankers who had looted the population and the shareholders were able to retire with their hundreds of millions or even billions in personal assets, while the taxpayers had to bail out the banks to the tune of hundreds of millions and even billions. So the whole 2008 economic collapse was a typical communist system where the risks are public and the uh, privileges or the profits are private. So, yes, the, the heads of these banks all became multi-billionaires and super rich and were able to retire to the yachts and palaces without having to repay any of the ill-gotten gains and the taxpayer was settled with a burden. And so, um, the U.S. Federal Reserve expanded its balance sheet by 500% to $5 trillion to prop up insolvent bankers with a Ponzi-like uh, worthless derivatives. And between 2007-2012, the balance sheets of six largest banks were inflated by 36% from $10 trillion to $14 trillion, paid for in many cases by the taxpayer. In the aftermath of this financial crisis, attempts were made to remedy what was actually an insoluble problem. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act passed in 2010 had all kinds of regulations designed to promote accountability, stability and transparency, so-called. But 200 pages of the act were devoted to mortgage reform and include higher underwriting standards and obligation on mortgage originators to ensure that borrowers have the ability to repay their loans. Can you imagine that you've got to check that the people who lend money to have the ability to repay? I mean, what a 
novel idea. And it's that very thing that they had encouraged on the bulk to scrap to give home loans to people who had no history of paying off their debts and no likelihood of doing it either. And so they were doing a lot of affirmative action, uh, black economic empowerment uh, loans for people who were likely to default on their debts and create this complete crisis from this housing loan speculative bubble. And now new laws are having to be brought in to rectify the deliberate sabotaging of the previous laws by the President of the United States, Bill Clinton. Now, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which is, of course, controlled by the Rothschilds, is overseeing a lot of these so-called financial reforms, which are anything but reforms. And uh, the opposite outcome will probably happen to what they claim the goal is of these legislations. And so one of the reasons why the developed world has in the past produced superior long-lasting products has been partially deindustrialized so that inferior goods have to be continually produced by third world countries to fuel a growth syndrome. And so by exporting your jobs overseas to sweatshops and slave markets like in Indonesia or slave concentration camp factories like in Red China, this is how so much of what's going on in the world operates. You think how people are buying cheap goods in America, destroying the jobs of people in America by giving the jobs to effectively slaves or totalitarian dictatorships like Red China or Indonesia overseas. And uh, you take a woke company like Disney or a woke uh, companies like McDonald's and their toys and everything else are made in China normally by slave labor. You can't beat the price of slave labor. And uh, so they undercut real people's wages in the West and export jobs overseas. If you want to buy an American flag, it's probably made in China. You could say the same for a lot of the trinkets sold in London as part of uh, the tourist traps. Many of them are made in China, and they're going to break almost as soon as you buy them. Poor quality, but they're made by slaves in countries that have no freedom. And this is why the system in the West has become very parasitic. Instead of producing good goods that are well-made, Many things are poorly made and not even made in the country, but imported from overseas. So what we're seeing is the primary cause of the ballooning debt bubble has been the suicidal policies of globalization and free trade, meaning allowing foreign slave labor materials like from Red China coming into the country without any uh, customs tariffs. It basically is undercutting real people doing real high quality work in our own country. I see this in Cape Town where we used to have a top class a community of tailors, our fashion design and uh, clothing sector in Cape Town used to be strong. But now with all the cheap junk being imported from China, who can sell their products at a reasonable price when you've got slave labor goods being brought in? And so it's destroyed so much of the local industries and many people's jobs and companies have closed as part of what they call globalization and free trade. Well, I know what it's free for, except free for, free for criminals to destroy local jobs. So the relocation of many industries to third world countries has precipitated a reduction in the manufacturing base of developed Western countries. 
structural unemployment of a permanent nature, widening trade gap. In an attempt to maintain their failing standards of living, consumers in the affected countries have been forced to take on increasing levels of personal debt, people living beyond their means, taking out debts, living on a credit card, maxing out the credit card, getting another credit card to pay off the interest on a previous credit card, all that sort of thing. It's, it's the cycle of living in debt. It's debt slavery. Those who control the debt control everything. And that's what we see with the banks. They create wars to create debts. Uh, they uh, give loans to governments which are created of nothing, but the interest charges are very real. And so you can see how uh, growth at the moment, what we're seeing in the West is growth in inflation, growth in crime, growth in welfare, growth in um, unrestricted uh, foreign immigration, and uh, you've got to pay for it all. Fewer and fewer people are doing the work, and more and more people are living off the benefits. A dog can only live with so many ticks. After One tick won't kill a dog, but hundreds of ticks on the dog might kill the whole dog. So when the whole system is made up of parasites, then after a while, the host body dies, which is what happens in communist countries. So right now, there are 1.6 billion people in the world facing absolute water scarcity, and global demand of water is going to exceed supply by 40% in just 2030, which is coming up soon. Water is going to become one of the most valuable commodities on earth because people are literally going to be dying of thirst. We are, there's been so much war against good, pure water, so much water is being polluted, and we could say so much food is also being, uh, food supplies being destroyed. There's a war against farmers um, all over the world, uh, especially in Netherlands and in South Africa, although we've just seen a tremendous backlash in Netherlands where the Farmers' Citizens' Party has just won a landslide victory and plainly the population has spoken. They're fed up with the attempts of the globalist governments in the Netherlands to try and destroy most of their farms and kill most of their cattle and plough up most of their lands and hand over their farmlands to migrants for low-cost housing. And so the people in the Netherlands have revolted against us and there's a great growth in populist movements right now. But you can also see another war, not just a war against food and fuel, but there's a war against families and fertility. Um, countries with a majority white population have found their fertility rates have been falling dramatically for many reasons, including fertility issues as a result of tremendous amount of hormones and vaccinations and interference in people's health standards through additives to the water and to the food supply. But... Um, the accepted fertility rate for any population is 2.11. But in fact, throughout the West, you're seeing more and more that the average family or average married couple is having less than two children each, which ultimately is a death knell to any society. You need to have, for a placement value, 2.11 children for every couple in the country. And uh, right now, you can see that white Chinese and Japanese populations are being severely depleted, whereas other populations are greatly increasing. And uh, fertility rates in the West have been going down, down, down. Of course, abortion and uh, uh, sterilizations and so on are also playing a major factor. You should also say that pornography is also aimed as a war against the family and against the father and against um, growth and to get people to continually be turning to irresponsible 
results and the end result is going to be less and less productive, hardworking people who produce and pay taxes and so on, and more and more uh, of easily manipulatable and controllable populations that the New World Order globalists can use to turn Europe into Arabia and London into Londonistan, America into Ameristan and so on. And uh, so you can see the bankers have a big globalist agenda that includes health, includes a population, food, fuel, and by controlling the debt, they control everything. So right now we're seeing technological advancements in the West, but progressive deterioration in standards of civilization. More and more concentration of power and wealth based exclusively on the dishonest banking methods, and it's enabled a tiny minority of dishonest criminals to control the media and the education process, to brainwash a mindless, atomized humanity who are deluded by spurious comforts of democracy and materialism into suicidal practices of savage, bloody, pointless, no-win wars. Central banking and cultural degradation, as seen in Hollywood, will eventually result in demographic extinction. So Stephen Goodson's looking beyond the economics to demographics as well, that all this is designed to not just bankrupt the West, but to actually destroy the whole Western Christian civilization. That the goal here ties in very much with what we've been talking about of the Sabbateans of Sabbatizevi of 1666, the Illuminati and the anti-Christian agenda. This is a war against Western Christian civilization, against white Anglo-Saxon males and families, against the future, against faith and freedom. It's a very long-time massive war. Well, interestingly, Rome at the time of Cicero was moving away from its senator republic towards more of a militaristic empire of Sulla. And the impact, once the civil wars had cleared, was that minting was centralized and usury was controlled by the banksters in Rome. And when Julius Caesar tried to limit interest to 1% monthly um, and the populace rose up to ban compound interest with no accumulated interest, um, there was an assassination of Julius Caesar and before we knew it, Rome was entrenched in ever-increasing wars to get more gold and silver for their bankers uh, who were controlling and oppressing, enslaving effectively the entire empire. In the Byzantine Empire, the Roman Empire of the East, interest was limited officially to 5%, but um, this was only enforced under strong emperors like Basil II. Uh, generally speaking, the Byzantine Empire grew well when they banned usury, but when they tolerated it, um, wealthy landowners um, came to be forced out of business by the usury and all interest compounded. And so Constantinople had a series of puppets, emperors who were controlled by these bankers, and uh, Currency became a universal standard far east as China. Originally, the peasants were free landowners and feudalism didn't exist anywhere. And inflation didn't exist either and trade flows always favored the capitals. So oligarchic states like Venice and Dubrovnik and Roman Norman interlopers in Sicily continually financed Rome's enemies. And in 1204, the Western 
crusaders were persuaded, actually bribed to sack Constantinople and to destroy the uh, usury-free Byzantine Empire. And then came the Venetian oligarchs who were puppets of the bankers. And this created tremendous financial um, chaos and later Byzantine Empire was gutted and parasited off and finally overwhelmed by the Turkish invasion of 1453. And so the greatest city in the world, Constantinople, was destroyed by usury and by interference of the bankers who sponsored mercenaries to even sack the city and weaken it so that it could no longer even resist the Turks. There's no economic mystery here, he writes. Wherever interest is tightly controlled, the continued compound leakage of cash to banking centers does not exist. Financial hemorrhaging means that value remains where it belongs, with a small businessman and a small landowner. Without the ge geometrically increasing massive interest, a fraction of today's total labor would be sufficient to maintain monetary stability, necessary supplies, with a nobility forced to serve the state rather than to rule it. Within the modern system of usury, compound interest, centralization is unavoidable as compound interest continually increases the flow of real value out of the economy and into the coffers of the cabal running the banks. Now, England was no different. Prior to the Norman invasion, Anglo-Saxon England, even after the Viking attacks, existed in the financial golden age. Smallholders were the norm, urban trade maintained low prices, lack of liquid capital forestalled any centralization. Feudalism could not exist under such a system. Usury was banned in mercy under Offa the Great, and frantics, uh, in Alfred's frantic attempts to centralize power in Wessex against the Danes, he too refused the services of the banking cabal, recognizing it would be slavery. The Italian banks, however, were interested in William's planned assault on Anglo-Saxon England to remove the Scandinavian influence from England. So William, that's William the Conqueror, had a small army of Jewish slave traders and Venetian and Roman bankers. Usury was permitted for a time under the Normans after the invasion of 1066. The old English aristocracy was slaughtered and William imported new nobility with close ties to Italy. Feudalism made its first appearance on English soil. Ireland several centuries later was also to see the benefits of this Norman progress of usury and debt slavery. Now, such progress by the time of Stephen led to the creation of a banking system, charging an average of 33% on collateral lands, 300% on capital, that's tools within cities. Within two generations, a full 66% of England's land wound up in the hands of Italian and Jewish bankers. This might explain the constant drive to take more and more French land for this and Jevian Empire. This was to be the lot of Norman Britain until the reign of Edward I. In 1307, Edward I, Edward Longshanks, imitated the Byzantines, where many Anglo-Saxons had served, by tightly limiting interest and its accumulation, and he finally kicked all the bankers out of the country and ushered in an age of prosperity, which was unfortunately cut short by the Babonic Plague which came from a boat from China. 
it's no accident that just at the time when Byzantium had given away its economic sovereignty to Venice, Britain moved in opposite direction against Italy and Rome. From the reign of Edward I to the plague, England was prosperous. The working year amounted to 14 weeks a year, within which all essentials were obtained. The church calendar in both Eastern and Western Europe required between 100 and 140 days off a year, about 140 holy days, including Sundays, and the period after Easter. Free enterprise was to make great strides, but capitalism waged war on the church and sought Protestant sanction for eliminating saints' days from the calendar. The rule of the smallholder returned for the first time since Edward the Confessor, but this sadly um, was undermined by later banksters coming in. Once Henry VII had stabilized Britain off the War of the Roses, the time was ripe for the rise of the banks again. The Reformation and the immorality of Henry VIII gave it the excuse it needed. The Reformation was an attempt by the Stuarts to begin centralizing power once the old nobility had slaughtered itself into oblivion. Monastic lands were secularized, markets developed, uh, financing long-distance trade became a priority. Henry VII became the last gasp of a powerful traditional state. From Henry VIII to Edward VI to Elizabeth, a new oligarchy gained power that required pomp of monarchy to hide behind. Soon it became confident in its role and required William of Orange to justify itself. So the bankers sadly came in with William of Orange, even though there was a lot of good that he would have done, but accepting loans from these people, unfortunately, they always had long strings attached. And similarly, Oliver Cromwell, although he did a lot of good, he sadly allowed himself to be manipulated by financial interests who gave loans and enabled uh, the bankers to return to England after being banished by Edward I. So Parliament became the instrument of capitalism and empire and sought any excuse to raise more taxes to take revenge on Spain and so on. Well, the war with France was financed by Amsterdam banking establishment and uh, sadly uh, Britain got itself into this Bank of England which got it into more debt than ever before. So Britain is still paying off its First World War loans which is absolutely staggering. And uh, what we are seeing in the history of central banking is this continual movement. In fact, a tremendous summary is given here at the back. Um, one of the reviews here says, in the European popular consciousness, money has traditionally been associated with something dirty, something criminal, something unworthy of a European man, something taught to be savored and excelled only by secrets of foreigners and distant aliens. From antiquity to post-modernity, tons of books have been written on the subject of cursed money and wretched gold. Recall a scene from ancient Greek King Croesus or the wretched Midas gold. Think about the mass slaughter in the medieval Nibelungen saga, whose story revolves around hidden gold in the Rhine River and the suffering caused by that gold. Well, Stephen Goodson reminds us that the obsession with abstract money and the practice of usury has lost none of its deadly flavor today. In fact, many modern business transactions and many global financial malpractices are spurred by the same greed for gold 
it's become even deadlier now. What's at risk is not just survival of Western civilization, but the existence of mankind itself. And so Stephen Goodson writes as somebody who was once a board member of the Southern Reserve Bank. He's got long-term insider trading knowledge, first-hand experience in the banking business in the Reserve Bank. And as he points out that the Reserve Bank has nothing to do with the government. It's privatized. So the American Reserve Bank is not American. It has no reserves and it isn't a bank. But it serves anonymous corporation, a crime syndicate of powerful financial movers and shakers. It's no accident that since the explosion of the so-called housing bubble in America in 2008, not a single bank has been called to account for printing false money or handing out worthless derivatives and surreal loans, irreplaceable, uh, irrepayable loans. One hand is washing the other. Stephen Goodson's book gives a remarkable knowledge of social and political circumstances of ancient Rome, Cromwell's England, Weimar Germany, and you cannot dismiss this book. Stephen Goodson gives the facts well embedded in the framework of historic narrative that makes this book not just informative and scholarly, but a refreshing read for a novice wanting to find out more about the mystique of money. Usury has been around for ages. It's at the heart of social upheavals and wars and revolutions. The ancient Romans experienced usury uh, many times, ultimately led to Rome's demise. Stephen Goodson portrays the Roman statesman Caesar's societal and economic reforms, his introduction to the first welfare system, remission of rents for, rent for destitute Romans, and his interdiction of charging interest on the already existing credit system. The Roman Empire briefly flourished, but the bankers could not tolerate Caesar's magnanimity and generosity towards the poor and decide to kill him. Users of whom many of these foreigners were of Jewish origin, alongside fawning Gentile lackeys, seems to have been the major transmission belt in the growth of corruption and decline of Western civilization. Similar patterns of economic growth and decline could be observed. Um, in England, once the money lenders came back after being expelled in 1290. And uh, in fact, as Stephen Goodson points out, the cathedrals stand as concrete proof of the benefit of not charging usury because once Edward I had expelled all the money lenders, uh, 1290 and banned usury, Britain moved from needing to pay hordes and hordes of taxes to needing to only work about 14 weeks a year and having about 140 holidays a year. And so the building of the cathedrals are one of the examples of that um, excess of free time and um, surplus of money, which wasn't being sucked up by bankers. So that the centuries of the cathedrals being built stand as a reminder of that time when they managed to abolish usury and expel the banksters who had been charging interest and enslaving the whole country. So what we have now is an interesting light on the quality of life in the Middle Ages. Some aspects of Middle Ages life were superior to our quality of life today when the people only needed to work 14 weeks a year and had more holidays and working days in a given year and were able to build the greatest architectural masterpiece the world has ever seen. But the bad news is in 1694, the Bank of England was created, the model on which all central banks in Europe and later the United States have been built 
And uh, we see some resistance, such as Andrew Jackson in America, who campaigned under vote, Andrew Jackson, no central bank. And uh, he managed to remove the central bank, and America flourished economically as a result. But when Woodrow Wilson brought the Federal Reserve Bank in 1913 with, with federal income tax, the result was a never-ending series of wars, mainly waged against countries that did not have a Rothschild Bank and countries that were standing up for Western civilization against communism. And uh, we've seen recent years ongoing targeting of countries that go away from the petrodollar and away from Rothschild-controlled usury banks and uh, the bombing of Libya and creating of the chaos of the so-called Arab Spring of 2010-2011 on and uh, the wars against Libya, Syria, Iraq, Iran, these just coincidentally against countries that don't have a Rothschild-controlled bank and don't use usury. So the title tells it all, A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind. Central banking is one of the most effective means of enslaving mankind because while the money they loan to governments are created out of nothing, ex nihilo, just a blip on a computer screen, the interest charged to the taxpayer to pay for these loans is very real. And so what you have is most citizens in most countries of the world today are working most of the time to pay off interest to bankers who've made loans to governments. And uh, you don't need to do that. You can see there are examples in history, such as in Russia, in uh, Germany, in Japan, Italy, where you can have a state-owned bank that will issue notes without any need for interest and uh, provide the means of credit and trade and a country can have zero inflation, zero unemployment, full productivity without giving into the usury banks of the International Monetary Fund and uh, the Rothschilds where they are creating money supply and enslaving the country for generations and paying the interest on their debts. So getting hold of this book is well worthwhile or sharing these messages that we've given summarizing it, History of Central Banking and the Enslavers of Mankind. If we want to be free, we need to know the truth. The truth will set us free. Thank you, Andrew. Back to you. Thank you very much, Peter. And um, I want to thank Stephen Mitford Goodson as well, uh, the two of you together. Of course, Stephen is no longer with us, but what a legacy he left us. And that's why books like this are so important, folks. The link to get the book from Peter, and this also helps uh, the Goodson family, will be in the post for this show. And it uh, is, I'm sure you'll agree from what you've heard, an amazing book. And what better source than someone who worked the South Africa uh, Reserve Bank, I believe. Um, he was Yes, he in... was a director of the South African Reserve Bank for nine years. There you go, a director on the board. Knew exactly how these things worked. And being a Christian, he spoke out against them. And it may well have been what got him killed. Because he phoned his wife, I understand, when he was taken to hospital unexpectedly and said, they're killing me. And then he died. And yeah, get, get me out of here, they're going to kill me. Yeah, there you go. This is what these people do, folks. You're talking about pure evil. That people will have an idea that they will go into a country where 
your average person's minding their own business, they're raising their families, they're working 14 weeks a year and they're using other time to build cathedrals and they think, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll take all their money so that they'll have to work, they'll have four weeks a year off like we do today and they'll probably have to work extra jobs as well. That's not even going to make ends meet because we want it all. And we'll blackmail politicians and bribe politicians and we'll do this, that and the other. And this is why you've got all this garbage going on in the world today. Because so many people have been corrupted that they get away with it more and more. And the question has to be asked that if all these countries have got debts going back all these years, who are they in debt to? And why are they paying these debts off to private people? Why aren't they saying we are a country that operates for the benefit of our people? So if we can't feed our people, you ain't getting anything, all right? Why aren't countries setting up their own state-controlled banks that we talked about on this show, or Peter mentioned, like the Libyan model? You know, how many countries' populations had all the benefits that the Libyan people had? And look at what they've got today. It's a mm. disgrace what's gone on in this world. And when you see all the conflict going on in it now, unfortunately, ourselves and our forefathers have only got themselves to blame because we should have stood up against this. And we try our best now, but it's almost as if the, you know, you know, the horse has bolted, as they say. Um, you've left the barn door open, the horse has bolted. It's very difficult to get it back because you can't... It's very risky speaking politically about this, as, uh, you know, Stephen Goodson probably found out. Uh, so anyway, Peter, any final comments before we go? Yes, just, just a comment I see on uh, the book uh, History of Central Banking by Stephen Mitford Goodson. He says, The ability to operate a fraudulent credit and loan system has long been known and to all the slickness of snake oil salesmen, these moneylenders, the same types Jesus whipped out of the temple, have persuaded governments that banking is best left to their private control. And uh, yes, the, the view of Jesus taking a whip and chasing these moneylenders out the temple is what we need a vision of that today. Christians need to realize that charge of interest, which is forbidden throughout the scripture, which is the main emphasis of Magna Carta to forbid usury, that the usury practice has been a disaster that has led to massive inflation, which is a hidden tax, huge taxation, and tremendous debt burden upon countries, people. And, you know, considering now how my children are struggling to get homes and home loans, imagine if they were in the Third Reich in, in 1930s, they could have been given a home and a home loan free, and for every child born, they'd be forgiven 25% of their debt. And so they could have a home owned free if they had four children. Now, my daughter, for example, has got three sons. So imagine she could really have paid off three quarters of their debt on a home loan, and they're still struggling to get their own home. Uh, I've got all my children living with me right now. And again, we're just seeing how um, it's very hard for the next generation to own their own home now, largely because of all these wars, all these debts, all these compound interests, and this Tremendous burden of taxation. And, of course, it was the goal from the beginning, as Stephen points out, to get the mother out of the home and into the workplace because if you tax them more and if the mother's out of the home working in a factory, it's proven that uh, when both uh, mother and father are out of the house working, there's going to be less children. So it's created a demographic disaster where you won't have enough 
people and then they can import more of the people they want from third world who they can control easier into your country uh, to fill the gap because you're not reproducing well enough. The moment you force mothers out of the home, you're going to have much lower fertility and much less children being born, which is just statistically, factually, historically so. And uh, that's why wars like the First World War were so catastrophic because it's got the mothers out of the home. Well, who's bringing up the children now? We can leave it to the states, you know, what could possibly go wrong. And uh, so this extra taxation has also got a goal in the genocide of the Anglo-Saxon people to uh, turn Europe into Arabia. So you can see demographics are also part of it. It's not just economics. But at the end of it, there's a war against the Christian faith. A war against faith, family, food, fuel, freedoms, all of that's being under attack. And Stephen called this out already over 10 years ago. This book was produced in uh, uh, 2012. So uh, he saw this all coming, and it's just clearer now than ever before. But the good news of today is that the farmers in the Netherlands are rising up and resisting this new world order, and that's very encouraging. I think all of us should be encouraged to resist. Thank you, Peter. And, um, yeah, this you see why they're trying to push this central bank digital currency, because too many people know this information or they know a fraction of it. And they need to get that in place so that when anyone does speak about it, they turn their money off, just like they took my books mm-hmm. off Amazon and they tur- turned my PayPal account off. And then they said, uh, oh, it's because it's brand risk. We can't have it on your website. And then a few weeks later, when I was buying things online, I was sort of checking out as a guest on PayPal because they'd taken my account off me. And they kept saying, oh, why don't you set up an account? And I thought, oh, well, okay, they're asking me to. So I set it up on a personal email address. I didn't accept a penny in a donation on it. I never put it on a website. And a few weeks later, oh, you can't have a PayPal account. We know who you are. So it's nothing to do with brand risk. It's to do with... They want to make your life difficult if you have views that conflict with theirs. And so you can bet your bottom dollar, if you'll pardon the pun, that as soon as people let these digital currencies into their lives, they will find that if they have any opinions these people don't like, they will literally be starved because the only currency that will be accepted is the digital currency which these criminals control and they will use it to silence anybody they do not like. So I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today for a show entitled The Real Story of the History of Central Banking and its Enslavement Part 5, Enslavement of Mankind Part 5. That is the final part. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.